The Bible teaches us that in our quest for knowledge about this world and ourselves, we can go wrong because of a single mistake that we make at the beginning. If the bedrock upon which we build our worldview isn't scriptural, then everything else will be wrong as well. Uh, Friends, knowledge of the triune God as he has revealed himself in the Old and New Testaments is the only, the only thing that puts human beings into a a right relationship with reality, with all the objects of our perception. Every other epistemological foundation is a two plus two equals five shifting sand foundation. And Koheleth, the teacher, the writer of Ecclesiastes, he's a man of unlimited genius vast wealth, and he's taken it upon himself to sample all that life under the sun has to offer a person in terms of fulfillment and joy and ultimate purpose. So he's done this for us. We don't have to do it and have a futile life. He's actually done everything you could think of, and he's coming back to us now and saying, here's what I found. And as we've seen over the past two Sundays, his findings are very grim. From the merely earthbound, finite perspective of the secularist, a person who does not fear God. Life is a purposeless, inconclusive, ephemeral spiral into futility. Everything is wearisome. It's a rat race existence of pattern and routine, a meaningless repetition of boring cycles. And that's not just how life can seem when circumstances get the secularist down. That's what life is. Why? Because the stuff of this world wasn't created by God to bring ultimate purpose and fulfillment. But that's what fools try to do with it all the same. Not because the fool is intellectually stupid. Biblically speaking, the fool is a moral anarchist. They're the person who lives life without reference to God as he's disclosed himself in Holy Scripture. I once read of an emperor penguin who had become lost and wound up on the beaches of New Zealand, 3,200 kilometers from the Antarctic coast. Uh, Supposedly, this was the first time in 45 years such a thing was sighted in the wild. And, And sure, it made for some interesting pictures, seeing a penguin walking along a tropical beach, like something from Madagascar. Uh, But the sad fact was, the penguin was dying of thirst. And it had taken to eating wet sand, expecting it to melt like snow. Why would it do that? Because the penguin was limited in its experience and interpretation of reality. It was only only able to think in limited parochial Antarctic terms. And so to quench its thirst, it ate sand. Beloved, human beings without the scriptures are, and without God's spirit to open the truth of the scriptures to our blind eyes, we're just like that penguin. Spiritually speaking, we're dying of thirst. And we've taken to eating sand to fix the problem, the worst thing possible. The fool begins their search for truth and purpose and wisdom, lacking the larger divine perspective of Holy Scripture. And so they try then to milk the created order for a fulfillment it cannot possibly provide. They glut themselves with pleasure and self-indulgence. They live for money. But making money is ultimately futile. When we die, someone else will inherit all of our possessions, someone who didn't work for it. And who knows, they may be a fool. And philanthropy is a waste of time, too. Great building projects are vain. It's all utter futility because death swamps over everything. Nothing under the sun has eternal significance. It's all transitory. Striving after one's place in history is like striving after the wind. What a waste of time. We'll we'll all be forgotten by future generations, no matter how wonderful our accomplishments. Who is Roy Thompson? We have no idea. Who cares? It's just some guy. And from the perspective of the secularist, 
making any kind of sense of suffering and injustice in this world is impossible. The Bible, in its canonical entirety, tells us that the injustice we see all around is working itself out under the sovereign hand of God, and that one day justice will be done, it will be seen to be done at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. In the meantime, the wickedness of human beings provides a massive demonstration on the stage of history of human ignorance regarding our own sinful nature and our own eternal destiny. I didn't get that. Could you try again? It shows us like nothing else that we need a savior. Brothers and sisters, this is where we've come in three chapters in Ecclesiastes, but it's also where we're going for the remaining nine. For the rest of the book, we're going to see a lot of overlap. The teacher is approaching these very same issues again and again, just from slightly different angles. Koheleth is saying, look, this is what life really is. And the only way to face life in this world without succumbing to despair, the only way to enjoy the the good gifts that God has given you in this life, the only way to escape the final judgment is through faith in the sovereign God of Scripture. Now, the style of the middle section of the book of Ecclesiastes from chapter 4 through 10 is quite different from the first three chapters and the last two. Uh, In many ways, the middle section resembles the book of Proverbs, sort of with, with short epigrams or sayings dealing with various aspects of life, which means the points of the sermons over the next few weeks that I preach Uh, they're going to seem like they're jumping around a lot from topic to topic to topic, and that's because they are. Uh, As you you should know also, the sermon outline that's in your bulletin, um, that isn't mine. Uh, It's lifted from a commentary, but folks, really, it's anybody's guess how to outline the book of Ecclesiastes. Every commentator you look at is completely different. Nobody agrees, Um, but what you see there in your bulletin isn't going to steer you far wrong. However, I won't be following it punctiliously. I'm going to take my own approach. So, the first one. Life's hardships and life's companions. Chapter 4, verse 1 to 5, 7. Look at chapter 4, verse 1 in your text. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. I once saw a Holocaust documentary where a Jewish woman who had survived the Nazi death camps was being interviewed. And she related that near the end of the war, uh, as the, the Russian army, the Red Army, was closing in from the east. And so the Germans, would, they forced march through the snow, many of the Jews in their more easterly camps, and they forced marched them to other camps in the west, hundreds of kilometers away. And this particular woman, she was marching through a German town, and and she looked up and she saw a German lady holding a lap dog in her arms. And this lady was looking down into the street from her apartment above, uh, watching the starving Jews as they passed by, petting her dog. And the Jewish woman in the documentary said that she wished in that moment that she could trade places with the woman's dog to be fed and cared for, to be warm and clean, and not on the receiving end of pure evil every minute of the day. If she could have, in that moment, she would have gladly changed places with a dog. And from an under-the-sun perspective, in a purely secularist world, a world where there is no hope, a world where there is no God who is in control, a world where human life has no dignity, no worth. We're just bags of chemicals who crawled out of primordial slime, living out our senseless, purposeless existence in a world that itself has no purpose. From an under-the-sun perspective, that sort of thinking, I suppose, makes sense. That trade-off, a dog for a human woman, in that situation is a good trade-off. Or better yet, never to have been born to be unaware of life's pain and futility. In a secularist world where our timeline of justice 
is reduced to the finite perspective of human beings where there is no sovereign God who controls all things in accordance with his will and who has reserved a day at the end for judgment, the injustice and the oppression in the world can drive one to say, as we see in verse 2, and I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. Friends, it's not unlikely that at some point in life, you're going to meet someone who wishes they had been born a dog or a stillborn child. Better that than to have endured the pain, the absolute evil that they've been subjected to in life. What are you going to say to that person in that moment? What real hope, what real consolation, what real encouragement can you give that person? It had better transcend any sort of lame under the sun philosophy. Maybe there's someone here today who feels that same way. Verse 4, and I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. For many people, career is a euphemism. It's a euphemism for the lonesome, envious rivalry of toil, that vain striving for success, meaning, and happiness they subject themselves to each day. For many, career is a god at whose feet they worship. Let me say to every student here and to every person on the path to or already enjoying a successful career, friend, let the scriptures guide you. Yes, do well in school. Get good marks. Work hard. If you possibly can, get a job you enjoy. Get extra training. Make money. Make lots of money. But guard your heart. The teacher sees that the main motivation for work is often human rivalry. Many times, the effort we put into advancing our career the techniques we uh, acquire, the extra training we get. It's really, it's really just a mad scramble after wealth. We lust after leadership. We lust for power. We lust for status. We want to outclass others, don't we? I mean, secretly, the bottom of our hearts, we want to outclass others. We're, we're in competition with others in our field. Pastors, too. I'm certainly not immune to this. Our career, if not an idol in itself, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm an SVP, whatever, can really be a means to a sinful end. The career provides the money to buy the stuff. And the stuff are the idols in life we worship, the granules of sand that we cast into the Grand Canyon at the center of our soul. Our stuff is our true treasure. It's where our heart resides. And because we're so sinfully blind, we think that keeping up with the Joneses and then surpassing the Joneses can replace Jesus Christ. It can replace the church. Or how about this? Jesus plus all the stuff that glitters equals true happiness. That's why we're not content with food and clothes and a warm, dry place to live. Because we don't find our ultimate joy and satisfaction in picking up our cross and denying ourselves and following Jesus on the path to death, death to self-interest for the glory of his name. Instead, our God is our career. And I'm talking Torontonians now, the wealthiest, most educated populace in the country. Our career is a God-given gift that we can turn in prostitution, as it were, to Satan, you know, in the furtherance of pride, covetousness, human rivalry. That's very possible. 
We'll sacrifice our family for career. We'll sacrifice our church community for career. You see, I'd hate to guess how many times I've had the following discouraging conversation and from people who should know better. Pastor John, I've accepted a job offer in Podunk Falls, Saskatchewan. I can make an additional 70 grand plus get a promotion plus buy a house. Congratulations. Are there any good churches in Podunk Falls, Saskatchewan? Oh, I'm sure there's something evangelical there. We'll be fine. Can you help us find something, Pastor John? I've already accepted the offer. Don't let that be you. Verse 7, again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had, no, he had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This, too, is meaningless a miserable business. Here's a picture of a man who's all alone in the world. He has no friends. He has no close relatives to keep him company. He's successful, but his eyes are not content with his wealth. His riches do not satisfy. A companion or an heir would be appreciative of their relation, right? I mean, they're going to stand to inherit all of his money, but he has no one. This, too, from an under-the-sun perspective, is part of life's futility. If he has an heir, right, he's only reaping futility. He works all of his life, and then he dies, and then everything he has goes to someone who didn't work for it and who may be a fool to boot. But if he has no heir, it means he dies alone with his money. This, too, is meaningless, a miserable business. And with verse 9... We come at last to a little breather. You'll recall that these breathers are interspersed throughout the book. Uh, the futility and the negativity stop for a brief moment. Our, our, our head comes up out of the muck. <gasps> We're able to breathe in and we see God, right? So continuing his companionship theme, the teacher tells us in verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Companionship is definitely a comfort in an uncertain world. Companionship is a help uh, when there's work to be done, or when we fall and we need help getting up, aren't, aren't we glad for Christian community, for the, for the friends, the brothers and sisters in Christ that we enjoy at New City Baptist Church? What a beautiful time it was at our prayer meeting on Thursday. If you weren't there, you missed out. Come again this week. At New City, we love one another. We help one another. We pray for one another. We keep each other accountable. We, we humbly point out sin. The gospel saves individuals and then it unites us together in a spiritual, familial, corporate bond. And the teacher tells us that companions can help fight off enemies or keep one another warm on cold evenings by sleeping together. It's good for a person to be married. It's good for a person to have friends. These are gifts the Lord has given us, just like our careers. And as good gifts from God's hands, they're to be enjoyed. Skip down to chapter 5, verse 18. This is what I've observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy, in their toil. This is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. Or is it that we're not able to enjoy what the Lord has provided for us providentially in his wisdom? We want, we want more. We want better. I remember, this is years ago, but it's still lurking in my heart. I remember moving, I was living in a cockroach apartment building it's just terrible 
and uh, I moved into a, a 166 Carlton for the first time. And uh, the second I came to the door, I was like, oh, this is all, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord. I walked across the living room and I looked out the window and I saw like downtown Toronto glittering like a jewel and all the other great condos that people were buying supposedly, I guess. And I was renting this one. And it's just like instantaneously. I actually, I went to the door, saw it, and my heart went down. It's like, ah, oh, why don't I have that? I just came from a cockroach infested apartment and I just thought about it in two seconds. We want more. We want better. Christian, that's just as secularist and an under-the-sun perspective to life as milking the things of life for too much contentment, right, when we don't enjoy it. You know, both attitudes are a great evil. They're an assault on God's good, sovereign providence. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor so that they lack nothing their hearts desire. But God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them. And strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning. It departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than that man does, even if he lives a thousand years twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity. Do not all go to the same place. Everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. What advantage have the wise over fools? What do the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. There are people in this world who receive from God wealth, great possessions, great honor. They truly lack nothing. They receive this vast wealth and honor from God, yet they lack the ability to join it, to enjoy it. That the power to enjoy things is itself a great gift from God. To have so many other gifts and not this gift is immensely troubling. Now, some of us might be thinking, Lord, please smite me with this terrible problem. Smite me with wealth and possessions and honor, but not the ability to enjoy it. I know I'll struggle through it somehow. Am I right? If you're thinking that, this goes to show we'd be willing to trade personal holiness for money, for reputation, for honor. The teacher insists in chapter 6, verse 3, that a stillborn child is better off than a person who cannot enjoy the gifts a sovereign God has bestowed upon them. That applies to every single one of us. We live in Canada in the year 2023, where this this historical blip in the history of of planet Earth, we all enjoy, brothers and sisters, tremendous wealth. We have, we have much to be thankful for. Our bellies are full this morning. We had enough food. We had a, a warm place to, to lay our head last night. We're doing very well, all of us. A stillborn child is better off than a person who cannot enjoy the gifts a sovereign God has bestowed upon them. Such a child comes without meaning. It departs in darkness, and in darkness... His name is shrouded. But even if someone should live 10,000 years, yet never enjoy all the prosperity God has graciously given him, that person's life is meaningless. And in the end, he goes to the same place as a stillborn child, the grave. Beloved, do you see how important it is we maintain a biblical balance with all of this? Uh, Do you see how easy it is to either go to the left or to the right of God's intention? Either... Either we're cosmic ingrates for the truly marvelous gifts the Lord has lavished upon us and so derive no pleasure from our careers, our money, our family, our health, our food, our homes, or we whittle those good gifts down to the bone. We crack it open and we suck out the marrow and uh, trying to find joy and satisfaction and contentment that's found only in Jesus Christ. To the left and to the right. Christian, the first sign that there might be a serious problem with the biblical integrity of your worldview is that you're trying too hard to extract from those God-given gifts and pleasures more significance than they can rightly provide. 
Examine your heart. Truly, are, are you trying to extract from your marriage, your relationships, your friendships, your children, your good looks, your career, your education, your financial assets, your reputation, your real estate portfolio, your ministry, more significance than God intends? Are you looking at all those good things from an under-the-sun perspective or from the biblical vantage point of the cross of Jesus Christ and the fear of God as he has disclosed himself in the Bible? Do you recall that Kevin DeYoung quote from our first sermon in this series? To be a Christian is to receive God's good gifts and enjoy them the most, need them the least, and give them away the most freely. So if you're feeling the tug of this world, Christian, and we all do, but if you feel you might be in danger of being pulled right out of the boat by your overpowering thirst for the things of this world, the things that this world considers to be important and precious, if you perceive that you would gladly, gladly trade away a non-damnable chunk of your personal holiness for money, say, or if you'd be willing to barter off some of your fear of God for power or fame or love or respect or comfort or health, Or, if the good things the Lord has given you already do not give you joy. You are a joyless Christian, and you look at life the same pessimistic spectacles as does the thoughtful, consistent secularist with a 2 plus 2 equals 5 worldview, then, brother, sister, you need to look at the cross of Christ with new eyes, with new understanding. If we have Christ, if we have Christ, then we can afford to have a healthy detachment from the things of this world while simultaneously being very thankful and enjoying greatly all that he has provided for us. That's the balance. A healthy detachment while greatly enjoying all these good gifts. Okay, on to the next topic. Now for something completely different. So New City Today, we're kind of getting 10 topical sermons for the price of one. Next up, the teacher gives us a political anecdote about the short-lived popularity of the great And again, the overarching theme here is life under the sun and all the futility that it reaps. Koheleth, remember, he's he's rubbing our noses in this again. So back to chapter 4, verse 13. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship. Or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them. But those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So here we have a king. He's been reigning too long. He's out of touch. He's foolish. He doesn't know how to heed a warning, the text says. And so it comes to pass that a better man supplants him, a younger man, and he is the better man uh, if he has the right qualities. It doesn't matter how young he is or how uh, common or impoverished his upbringing, if he came from prison, it doesn't matter. Verse 13, better to be a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. And this young king is very popular for a time. Verse 15, I saw that all who lived And walked under the sun, followed the youth, the king's successor. Yet, in time, even the young king will go the way of the old king. He, too, will reach the pinnacle of his kingly glory, only to be left stranded. Someone will replace him, and then someone will replace his successor, and on and on and on. King Charles' coronation was the other week. Supposedly, 14 million viewers watched. I remember 12 years ago, though, back in 2011, people were up to all kinds of crazy hours of the night, early morning, to watch Prince William and Catherine Middleton's wedding ceremony. Anybody here watch that? Two of you? Okay, well, (laughs) 37 million people watched that event, supposedly. Uh, Now, some of you are too young to remember this, but until he actually said, I do, Prince William was the world's most eligible bachelor. And so women were waving signs all along the route to Westminster Abbey 
saying that they were single and would be willing to rule the British Empire by William's side. Uh, but Weighty Katie, as she was called, bagged him in the end after a decade of dating. And I guarantee you, beloved, with all the authority of the word of God behind what I'm saying, what the Princess of Wales will soon learn, if she hasn't already, and I suspect she has, is that being king or queen is yet another anticlimax in life. Just, it's just one more granule of sand flicked with a great black hole in the center of her heart. It's an ultimately empty achievement. King Charles knows that now, as does Queen Camilla. A life that reaches the pinnacle of human achievement, even a life that's exalted and adored by millions, without Christ is a futile, meaningless life. It's chasing after the wind. It's, it's empty. It's insubstantial. A great king and all his wonderful deeds are soon forgotten. Look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. At this point, the teacher pauses in his argument to offer some pragmatic reflection about how we need to be approaching God when we worship him corporately. And of course, there's always a, a worship distinction we need to bear in mind uh, when we're reading our Bibles. The, the corporate worship of God occurs in the context of the assembled congregation. That's where we read the Bible and we pray the Bible and we sing the Bible and we preach the Bible and we see the Bible in the ordinances of the baptism, the Lord's Supper, while individual worship of God occurs in the context of one's daily life. You can call it all of life worship, a la Romans 12, 1 to 2. Brothers and sisters, the way that we live, right, in response to the mercies that God has lavished upon us in the gospel means that we're offering up our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. We're conforming no longer to the pattern of this world. We're not being squished into its mold, right? But rather we're being transformed by the renewing of our mind through the teachings of Scripture and the Holy Spirit. That's Romans 12, 1 to 2. And so at this point, the teacher is offering some reflection about how we need to approach God when we worship him corporately, that other kind of worship. Because God is God. And he requires, he demands, he deserves more from his image bearers than mere outward formalism. Right? I mean, we can come to church today and there can be, there can be a lot of outward formalism. Stand up, sit down, do this, pray, bow your head. Our triune God deserves our reverent awe, our, our fear. And this text is a warning to us all. Many professing believers come to corporate worship on Sunday morning with bad hearts. Some may come out of custom. It's just what we do. Or superstition. Others come to be entertained or to meet their friends or hopefully to meet a future spouse. Some come to be pandered to. How can, how can my needs be met today? Still others come to be seen and heard that kind of worship dishonors God. And Old Testament Israel failed to approach the temple of God with proper reverence as well. In fact, the Old Testament book of Malachi says Israel dishonored God in his temple. God required his covenant people to bring their best animals for sacrifice, their very best. But they brought the dregs. They brought the offscourings of their flock. They brought the animals that weren't fit to breed, the blind, the lame, the sick. You know, oh, this lamb's at death's door. I'll bring this one, and it won't really cost me much. So instead of blessing his worshipers, God tells Israel in Malachi 1.13, when you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, and then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. And that's a lot like what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 23. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, 
Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your gift. So in this illustration, a man comes to the temple. He's going to perform his religious duty. But Jesus says it's more important that he be reconciled to his brother or sister in Christ than discharge that religious duty. Otherwise, it's all just one big sham. It's all meaningless. Christian, is your worship with us here today a sham? Is it is it bogus imitation worship? Maybe you've been singing your heart out this morning, but there's an issue that needs to be resolved with your brother or sister, something they have against you. Jesus says it's more important to be cleared of the offense than to show up this morning for church. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister. Right? Forget the corporate worship service. First, be reconciled to your brother and sister. People love to substitute ceremony for integrity, purity, love. But Jesus won't have it. In addition, the old covenant people of God were quick to make promises to God, but also quick to re- retract them later when they realized the implications of their words. Well, that's not going to work out well for me. That's really, really, really inconvenient, right? By word and by deed, the people of Israel treated the worship of God Almighty as a burden to be endured rather than as a delight to enjoy or at least as a happy duty to discharge. What the teacher is doing at the beginning of chapter 5 is he's describing and condemning the person whose worship of God is all pretense and formalism. He's describing the merely pious person. His target isn't the full-blown hypocrite so often denounced by the prophets. He's denouncing the person who likes to participate in worship services, chatters piously, and who rarely keeps their promises or performs what they have volunteered to do for God. Verse 1, guard your steps when you go into the house of God. Go near to listen. Go near to listen to the word of God rather than offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. So do you see he's... He's rebuking all pretense, all hypocrisy. He's rebuking superficial religiosity that hopes to be heard for its much speaking, right? But only fools babble on and on and on in their prayers. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 5, there's a lot of parallels here with the Sermon on the Mount. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So in sum, Jesus wants to teach us that praying to be a genuine act of righteousness must be without ostentation, directed to the Father and not to people, primarily private, and devoid of the delusion that God can be manipulated by an excessive word count. When we gather together on Thursday evenings, the prayers that you offer up corporately, that needs to be the overflow of your private prayer life. As you really pour it on, on Thursdays and Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, there's nothing. There's hypocrisy in your life. Ecclesiastes 5.4 When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. As Jesus would say, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest to the temple messenger my vow was a mistake why should god be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands much dreaming and many words are meaningless therefore fear god in other words let your worship be characterized by awe for god 
Have an honesty in your corporate worship of God. May it be characterized by awe. Awe-filled worship of the triune God is the proper response of every person. Christian, we've gathered today to ascribe all honor and all worth to our creator God because he's delightfully, infinitely worthy. Just think about what we're doing. We're responding in worship to the redemptive provisions God has graciously made for us in Jesus Christ. And our worship of God is finding its impulse in the gospel, what God accomplished in the death and resurrection of his son for sin, the good news which restores our relationship with our Redeemer God, and therefore also with our fellow image bearers, our co-worshippers. That's the motivation. That's the fuel for our corporate worship. And it's always going to be the gospel that guarantees our worship is filled with fear, with reverent awe. And so we worship, not in any old way that we deem fit, but empowered by God's indwelling spirit and in line with the stipulations of the new covenant. But heed the warning. All the pious words, all the corporate expressions and confessions of faith, all our prayers, all our fellowship, is all reduced to meaninglessness unless there's genuine awe for God in our hearts unless there is genuine fear of the Lord. If that awe for God is not propelling your adoration, this is all just meaningless ritual. It's a sham. God help us. If we sing the songs and we pray the prayers, but it's not coming from the experiential overflow of our hearts, brothers and sisters, we make a mockery of the cross and the power of the new birth. Guard against that. Meditate long on the love of God and his grace and his mercy extended toward you in the, in the cross of his son, Jesus Christ. That's how we combat this. Meditate long on that. Meditate upon the honor and the privilege of being adopted into God's family. Think much of your eternal reward. And if there's sin or hypocrisy in your life that's marring that communion that's marring your awe-filled worship, that's turning your time with us here today into a religious sham, then leave your gift at the altar, as it were, and go and be reconciled with your brother or sister. The last thing we'll be considering this morning, and don't worry, it's a much shorter point, is poverty and wealth from an under-the-sun perspective. Point B, we're going to look at poverty first. And this is, a, this is a very important issue. It's a complex issue. And for the Christian, it's related to a host of other issues. Uh, because poverty isn't an isolated phenomena removed from the rest of the fallen order. It's very much a part of it. And our understanding of poverty and what we should be, what we should be and are doing about poverty and what we can hope to accomplish in this world, it's tied to our biblical worldview. At least it ought to be. And one of the indicators that our worldview is biblically inconsistent is if we're surprised by poverty and oppression. But that's a shocking thing. The teacher was narrowing in and considering a very specific slice of the poverty issue in our text. The Bible speaks a lot about it. He's narrowing it right down to one thing. Look at chapter 5, verse 8. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied... Do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Christian, never forget, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that hates God, a world that has overturned his throne, a world filled with individuals who live for themselves outside the rightful rule of their creator God. And that anarchy, that anarchy is often expressed in rapacious greed, greed that exploits. And so we must enlarge our grasp of what it means to live in a fallen world that's ruled over by a sovereign God whose son has yet to consummate his kingdom. We need to enlarge our grasp of that. The son who will one day judge all sin, but we must have a biblical perspective at all times before our eyes so that when we're confronted with 
rapacious greed and exploitation. We're not devastated. We're not devastated because of false expectations. Oh, I thought life was like this. The Bible does not tell us that life in this world is going to be fair, that the poor will not be exploited, that avarice and greed will, before the return of Jesus Christ, just be wiped off the face of the earth. Just, I mean, just get the right politicians in there, right? With the, with the right economic theories backing them up, and we're going to achieve utopia. Jesus says, no, the poor you will always have with you. Evil and sin don't play by the rules, and we ourselves are part of this evil world order. There is evil, and there is greed, and there is exploitation in our own heart. My greed, with my mere thousands of dollars, is probably equivalent to the greed of Goldman Sachs and British Petroleum combined with their hundreds of billions. And it's only because of God's mercies that I'm not consumed. Verse 8, if you see the poor oppressed in a district, injustice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase in the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. In a fallen and broken world, we should not be surprised by corruption that rips off the people at the bottom of the pecking order. Like all evil, it should grieve us, and it should spur us to action when that's possible, but it should never surprise us, and that's what Koheleth is talking about. We can't afford to be so naive. And Ecclesiastes teaches us that God is not indifferent to injustice. For the present... Injustice and exploitation of the poor is an under-the-sun monstrosity that reveals the basic character of fallen human beings. It shows the infinite gulf between sinful humans and our holy creator. It shows us all of our need of supernatural transformation. It shows us all of us our need for divine forgiveness. The sad fact is that love of money creates greater love of money. Human desire outruns acquisitions no matter how massive the acquisitions may be. Somebody once asked John D. Rockefeller, then the richest man in the world, and I think actually after inflation, he still was the richest man who's ever lived, I think, how much money was enough? How much money is enough? And he famously replied, just one dollar more. Verse 10, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. An increase in wealth demands a corresponding increase in staff to manage it. And inevitably, it attracts a range of parasites, people who fawn over you, people you can't really trust. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. Because at the end of the day, money leaves you with sleepless nights. Because you're worried you're going to make a blunder and lose everything. Unlike the nights of the laborer who works his shift, tires himself out, and enjoys a good night's sleep. Verse 13, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners or wealth lost through some misfortune so that when they have children, there's nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil as everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Wealth is meaningless. That's a good Christian mantra. Wealth is meaningless. Every person will one day return to the grave devoid of all their riches. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. And the pitiable thing is, people will spend all their days in great sorrow and in distressing labor for such an empty goal as this, and Christians will envy them. 
brothers and sisters, let's save ourselves a world of trouble and let the book of Ecclesiastes inform our understanding of money. We must allow God's word to change our perspective on what the world worships as their God. The book of Proverbs tells us the sluggard, the lazy person, that they should look to the ant. The ant has no commander, no overseer, no ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. It works diligently for the food it eats and survives. Christians should look to the secularist, the person who is beating their brains out for nothing, hoping to find purpose and contentment in stuff, in money, in the stuff money can buy, and learn from the futility of their existence. Look to the secularist. May the bleak, purposeless horror story that are the lives of our non-Christian co-workers counsel us in our own view of wealth and success, as well as spur us on to the point to point them in love to the one in whom true meaning is found. There's so much more the Bible teaches about wealth, uh, and I've done whole sermon series on this in the past, so I'll just leave it there for now. And we've already considered the next chunk, so just skip down to chapter 6, verse 7. Everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. We work to eat, and eating gives us the strength to go on working. What's the point? Verse 8, what advantage have the wise over fools? Ultimately, nothing. What did the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? Ultimately, nothing. As verse 9 says, making do and being content with what we possess is better than endless striving for what we don't have. Wishing for things we want is worthless. It's a chasing after the wind. Verse 10, whatever exists has already been named and what humanity is has been known. No one can contend with someone who is stronger. Now, that's a really tricky verse, uh, but I think what the teacher is getting at is that human beings who are the creation of God, we can't overcome that divinely established connection between our earthly things, between earthly things and dissatisfaction with those things apart from knowing God, apart from fearing God. Otherwise, deriving satisfaction from stuff is impossible. Try as, a, try as a person will to wrestle and contest God's decision to link dissatisfaction with stuff, to find satisfaction and fulfillment in the gifts rather than in the divine giver. The more that person talks, verse 11 says, the emptier and more unsatisfactory the situation becomes. The more the words, the less the meaning. How does that profit anyone? Friends, God has commanded, hear this, God has commanded that the things of this world have an inherent incapacity to yield enjoyment and fulfillment from an under-the-sun perspective. That's just the way God created the universe, and he did it on purpose. He's warned us, so learn that lesson now, today. For who knows what is good for a person in life? During the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow, who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone. See, precisely what we need is someone from outside our biased, blinkered, right, under the sun horizon. Someone who is not laboring under the same simple perspective as we are. We need someone to save us. We need someone to deliver us from our sin and the futility of our life. We need Jesus Christ. Amen.